This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. Elliot Thomas. We're going to have fun today going over taxes. I know for a lot of you guys, you've been here before and you know that we like to answer lots of questions during these. uh, But if I could, if you guys could give me a reaction, thumbs up or a heart or something, if this is your first time coming to a Tax Tuesday, let's just see. I don't know if they can do reactions. Oh, there we go. I see. Oh, there they are. A few. You know, they're down here. Our computer screens are like all over the place and we're like hunting for which one's going to show us the, there we go. So for you new guys, this will be for the benefit of you guys that are brand spanking new. First off, welcome to a Tax Tuesday. It is all about bringing tax knowledge to the masses. All we're going to do is answer a bunch of questions and answer your questions and, uh, we bring a whole team. Let me just see. I got a bunch of folks. I got Dutch and Ross and Matthew and Patty and a bunch more answering tax questions in the back. So if you have a tax question, you could absolutely go and do it on your Q&A, that little feature in Zoom that's uh, marked with a Q and an A. <laughs> What's the little sign? Yes. Uh, I could say it before you asked me. Ampersand. A- ampersand. <laughs> right. So it's the Q ampersand A. And uh, you can absolutely pop in and, and ask a, a, a detailed question or ask a question that's uh, that you need an answer to on tax. If you're getting too detailed, we're going to say, you got to be a client eventually. Like We're not going to do your tax return and we're not going to give you tax opinions on these things. You're going to have to actually engage for that. But if you just want uh, answers to basic questions, we'll absolutely do that. Uh, you could always email in tax questions. Elliot grabs the questions. So we give Elliot... Um, I might have missed, right? But he answered, he, he grabs all the questions and uh, we grab a few, when I say a few, probably 10 to 15 every session and we go over them and answer them. I'll show you how that works. And it's supposed to be fast, fun and educational. Guys, we're just doing our best to answer your questions. We don't charge for this. So please be nice. These guys are all volunteers that are coming in here answering your questions. A bunch of tax professionals, CPAs, EAs, attorneys, a couple of attorneys sitting here. And we're just doing the very best we can to, to give you a straight answer. So some people get a little snippety once in a while. It's like, hey, chillax. We're trying to get to you. We're going to get to you. We're going to do everything we can. Speaking of everything we can, let's go. Uh, well, first off, let's do this. Where are you guys all from today? Let's, let's do that. I always like seeing where everybody's at. What city and state? So I see New York. I see a welcome, Timothy. I see Atlanta, Dallas, Claremont, Monument, Colorado, Wisconsin, Tacoma, Washington. Oh my God, now they're going too fast. Charlottesville. Oh shoot, they're just San Diego, San Francisco, Bend, Oregon. There we got that. Poconos, PA. I'm PA myself. Honolulu. So we got the, we're, we're, we're stretching now. We got Maryland, Arkansas, Florida, Clearwater, Florida. San Francisco, Seattle, Washington, lived there for 25 years. Bothell, Washington, not quite lived there, but just next door. University of Place, Washington, know that one, went to school in uh, Tacoma. We still have our office in downtown Tacoma, by the way. Orlando, Florida, and so we got people from all over the place. So first off, welcome and thanks for joining us, and now we're going to have fun. Then we got a Stockton in the house, Wellington, Florida. We got people from all over the place. You guys are awesome. So first off, welcome and thanks for joining us. Now down to business. Let's go over the questions we're going to be answering uh, today and a bunch, bunch more. If you have comments, by the way, put them in chat. So if you like, hey, Elliot, 
how did you get so good looking? You just put that right in chat. Don't put that in the Q&A because he's not going to see it, but we could see it. If you say, hey, what kind of knuckleheaded answer was that? Here's the real answer. Go ahead and put that in chat too. <laughs> we've, we've had it before. Yeah. I forget how many. We've done 200 plus of these. Yeah, so. this is 210, I think. Yeah, yeah. We're, at, at this point, I think that Yeah, we've seen it all. All right. If I purchase a vehicle in 2023, primarily for my business, is there a percentage I have to use for business versus personal to deduct the amount I paid for? I paid cash. That's my kind of person. Throw down the cheddar. And how will that affect other depreciation and such for my business? I guess I'm asking what is the best way to deduct this? Great question. We will answer that. With bonus depreciation being reduced to 40% next year and 20% the year after that, then ending in 2027, what are the alternatives for investors who have been using bonus depreciation through real estate purchases to reduce taxable income? Good question. Sounds a little sad though. 20%, 40%, none. Well, there's always some things that are floating around out there. That's what you got us for. All right. I have an LLC, C-Corp with an accountable plan, including medical reimbursements. Good. Uh, I have a high deductible insurance plan and an HSA. Better. Would it make sense to use the medical reimbursement from the C-Corp for uncovered medical expenses instead of paying the uh, with the HSA, letting the HSA continue to grow? Really good question. So I, I really like that one. I have to give that a... You, you did good. <laughs> it's a little complicated, but it's a good one. I have owned a residence for 10 years. I lived in it for the first year and then rented it out. We have re- recently moved back into it and want to live there for at least two years so as not to pay tax when we sell it. I will potentially profit about 350000 and am married. Is this a wise action? I'm 76 years old. I plan on moving into our other rental at that time and perhaps selling it after two years there. So somebody's being very thoughtful. We will answer and we'll give you your options. I am a real estate professional and bought many real estate homes or rental homes from 2018 to 2022. My accountant encouraged me not to use my real estate professional status to depreciate faster. Now I regret it. Should I just do amended returns? I paid a lot of taxes that I could have avoided in those years. Yeah. You remember the old, I could have had a V8? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I could have had a V8. How many of you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Especially me, with low sodium. Yeah, low sodium. <laughs> I remember this V8. There was just the drink this stuff and you felt immediately healthier. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. Drink your vegetables. Yeah. That's what drink they your vegetables. Now they have all this green stuff you yeah. drink and stuff. No, I don't drink that. My <laughs> wife drinks that stuff. Oh my God. She mixes it in with her protein drinks. It's just like, it's green. I just look at it. I'm like, no. <laughs> looks a little bit like mucus. <laughs> no offense to you guys. But Tastes about the same. Hey. No, so it's actually pretty good. But anyway. Could add a V8. Can I read? Can I go back and fix it? Ah, ah. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I have a partnership set up with my stock trading management company. Does it still make sense to distribute income to my trading management company structured as a C corp for taxes? If most of my trading gains this year will actually be long term capital gains and therefore would actually be taxed at a lower rate than the corporate rate. So good question. Mm-hmm. Real answer. I, I got Inglorious Bastards stuck in my head. All I could think of is, what, what did he say? Like, buongiorno, whatever the heck he said. Yeah, shoot. Oh, have, have you ever done that where you watch a clip of something and then it's like. That was our prep for this. We yes. watching- <laughs> somehow, somehow we ended up watching Inglorious Bastards and 
And he's going, Abadiche again, Abadiche with more flair, Abadiche. <laughs> anyway, some of you guys will go look it up. Just look Italian scene in Glorious Bastards. And You'll know what happens you'll... before we start. Yeah, and then thank me for it. All right. All right. How do you determine the best structure for residential assisted living business that will be located in Florida and Georgia? Buying the home and running it to the business. So this is going to be good. We'll go into that. You ask a very open-ended question and you'll get some some options here. What are the tax implications of investing in wine? This is for Clint. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't count if you drink it all, right? All right, for example, like using a platform like VinoVest. I made 20-something percent last year in my whiskey. Yes, and I don't even drink much. Is one able to write off losses from the sale of wine or offset these losses against taxes owed in a sort of tax loss harvesting way? Interesting. So we'll answer that. And it's actually an interesting answer. Yeah, it was a little bit different of a question. Yeah, we never get to dive into this. Like alcohol is a collectible, but we'll get into all that fun stuff. You'll get into that. All right. Is there a difference between filing taxes with an October deadline versus an April deadline? If yes, what are the advantages or disadvantages of each? So again, really good questions. And uh, we'll get that. So since you're killing me small, that's mine. Stop it, Patty. <laughs> There's jealousy in the ranks. <laughs> All right. If you like this type of stuff and you want more uh, brain food, uh, hey, there's Tyler Sassy, Learning to Weld. I don't know how that's up there, but that's awesome. I actually really enjoyed doing that interview. If you want to know about welding and how much you can make welding, that's actually a fun interview. I just yeah. do, I just grab some of my favorite clients and are like, dude, you got to talk to everybody. Not everybody should be going and spending $200,000 in college. You, these guys are making hundred grand doing welding. But anyway, on my YouTube channel, there's all sorts of brain food. There's how to write things off. There's different types of investment strategies too, especially every lawyer should know how to weld. I agree, Thomas. <laughs> I'm with you. I sat there and said, I need to go learn to weld. It's actually a really good skill. But if you want to, there's a little over 300,000 people subscribed to that channel. We don't spam you or anything. You just get notified when it comes out. And you can absolutely do that. It's aba.link forward slash YouTube. Patty just shot out Clint's channel. Thanks, Patty. No, just I'm sure that she sent out a link for my channel too. Clint has a great channel as well on, uh, she said I did, on on asset protection. Mine tends to be focused more on tax. We've been partners for 25 years. So I think that uh, together we make a pretty good, uh, we'll, we'll get you covered. But uh, there is a lot of information there. And then also we do the tax and asset protection workshops. A lot of fun we've been doing. I have a client named uh, Brent Nagy, who's like, he's been with us for, gosh, in some form or another, uh, working together for 20 years. Uh, he was a rich dad uh, disciple and worked with Robert Kiyosaki. He's a very successful real estate investor. And he comes on and teaches them quite often now because I like the idea of somebody who's done it from the client side, teaching the clients what to expect so that they've actually, so it's not just some lawyer yakking at you, although I still join him and I like to do that too. But I just think that there's a big difference. Well, you gotta, yeah, here, how about this? We'll do an informal poll. Do you like learning from people that do what you do? Or do you like people that are like a professional reading it out of a book and then regurgitating something that they read? <laughs> Would you rather have somebody who does it and did it from your standpoint, just as a client, and were successful at it teaching you? Give it, give me a thumbs up or give me a heart or something if that's who you'd like to listen to. Um, and uh, we won't give another one. Yeah, I see a ton of stuff. That's, that's my preference. And uh, 
somebody with direct experience. You have the yes, the person who does it, who does it. So Clint and I are real estate investors. We're sick. We we have hundreds of properties. We're just absolutely twisted minds. For whatever reason, we like the idea of having lots and lots of properties. Everybody's a little different. Some people like syndication. Some people like doing apartments. We do apartments, commercial. We have some commercial buildings. We have manufactured homes, mobile homes. A lot of single families, fourplexes, fiveplexes, eightplexes, 16plexes, probably some 24plexes thrown in there. But we like to do what our clients do so that when we're talking, it's we could say, well, this is what we do. And it's uh, easier to relate that way. All right. So anyway, so come to those. It's Clint, myself, Brent Nagy's been teaching them. I'm probably going to get Amanda Winalda to teach some more because she's awesome too. I'm just going to keep trying to do our best to bring you some different voices so you don't always just hear me and Clint going, not that there's anything wrong with it, but uh, a little variety sometimes is the spice of life, right? All right. Let's go to this, Elliot. We got to get to business. If I purchased a vehicle in 2023, primarily for my business, is there a percentage I have to use it for business versus personal to deduct the amount I paid for? I paid cash. And how will that affect other depreciation and such for my business? I guess I'm asking what is the best way to deduct this? What do you think? Well, uh, you're looking towards a deduction here for probably you're thinking about the depreciation here because you throw it in the question. So that would mean we'd probably need to purchase it in our business. Again, it does depend on how that business is taxed. We're talking about C-Corp, S-Corp, partnerships, you know, or disregarded. Uh, assuming that it's maybe a, a, a corporation, you're going to need to title it in the name of that. And then you can do the depreciation, but the problem there's a lot of problems with that. And to your question on the percentage of ownership, you really have to use it 50% or more for business to be able to do things like bonus depreciation or 179 deductions. So there, that's kind of leading you into the beginning of your, your question there. But ultimately, the better solution for our clients is often using just a standard mileage reimbursement. And that or deduction in the case of a sole proprietorship. Yeah. So so here's what I see a lot of times. I see somebody that uh, there's two kind of categories. There's the person that has one vehicle and they want to write it off as much as they can for business. And they don't know if they're going to keep doing that business or using that vehicle in that business. And what they'll do is they'll, that first year, they go to the accountant and the accountant says, buy something that's 6,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. We're going to write the whole thing off. You're going to get this big benefit. And first off, not quite true. You get to write off the amount of business use. So in order to use section 179, which is this million dollar plus deduction in year one, you can't create losses. Or if you want to use 168K, which is bonus depreciation, you have to exceed 50% business use. If during the life of that vehicle, you fall below 50%, you have recaptured. So I want you to walk through this. Somebody talks you into, hey, let's buy the Land Rover or the G-Wagon at the end of the year will do 100%, right? And they can do that. And you get this $200,000 deduction. Well, last year you win, you get 80% of that. So it's 2023, you're going to get 80%. And then you're going to depreciate the portion that you weren't able to use, the 20% you're going to spread out over five years. So you're going to get a pretty sizable deduction. The problem is, is if any time in the next four or five years, you drop below 50%, that whole amount comes back and hits you as an ordinary tax and it hits people. And then they always say, nobody told me, my accountant just told me to write it off. If you're buying a vehicle for the deduction, you're missing the point, but there's other ways to write off a vehicle, right? Sometimes you're not able to write off under 179 because it's not equipment. It's not over 6,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. It's an ordinary passenger car, Mm -hmm. in which case then you have limits 
it's like 20 something thousand dollars a year, right? Hmm. That with bonus depreciation, you can write off a passenger vehicle. There's limits, but again, it's your percentage of business use. So I keep coming back to that because if you fall below that 50%, you have recapture that ordinary income of that deduction that you took. So if you're pushing it to meet that 50% threshold and you're doing the ha ha ha, I'm going to write it off. And then the following year, you use it 10% business. You're going to be in for a really nasty surprise. And uh, some of the accountants play fast and loose with it and they pretend or they fake the numbers. It's called tax evasion and it'll get you in deep hot water if they catch you. What you want to do is track your business miles. And what we suggest, because when you put my, when you put a property or a, a vehicle into a business, you're going to pay higher insurance because you're covering any employee that could possibly be driving it. It's commercial policy. And you're subjecting yourself to the worry of having that recapture. If you keep it in your name, you're going to pay a little bit less, but you can reimburse 100%, 100% of those miles. Use a, an app like MileIQ and it'll track on GPS how many miles you're driving. And you could swipe left for business, right for personal, whatever it is, it might be backwards, but you're swiping one direction for one and one direction for the other. And it's easy to track. And that counts as a mileage log. You have to keep a mileage log, period, if you're trying to write things off with a vehicle for your business. So even if you bought a, a, a vehicle and you said, ah, 100%, you better be prepared to show the IRS that you have a second vehicle that you use for your home. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that go in with your eyes open, guys. Somebody says, what about if you sold it from your business to yourself personally, then can that work? If you sold, yeah, that potentially, if the business sold it to you, the business has, you know, they're going to recognize that as a taxable income. You still have depreciation recap. Yeah. And it it can reimburse you for the business use. And there's two methods you could do it. The actual expense methodology, or you're doing the mileage reimbursement. I think the mileage right now is what? 67. 67 cents a mile. So let's say 24. So let's just say that you're putting 20,000 miles a year and you're getting 67. I'm going to have to multiply that by two. So that's 12 and No, no, it wouldn't be that. It would be 13,400. So $13,400 comes to you. You don't have to put it on your tax return. It's a deduction to the company and you never have to worry about recapture. The punchline is I see this over and over again. They never tell you about recapture. Hey, we'll write this whole thing off. Okay, but when you sell it, so you get the G-Wagon, you sell it for $100,000, five years later, you have $100,000 of income. You wrote off 100,000 bucks. If you had been writing off, let's just say you're putting 30,000 miles a year. Let me just get my handy dandy calculator out. Let's just say you were doing that. What's the uh, 30,000 times 67? I suppose I should know that, but that's $20,000 a year. So let's just say it wrote off $20,000 $20,000 a year, you have no recapture and you could just keep writing it off. Even if you kept that vehicle for 10 years, 20 years. So I tend to be on the side. I don't want surprises right? and I want to write things off when they're occurring. So I tend to be on the side of writing off. I tend to be on the, the, the side of doing the mileage reimbursement. Somebody says, so it's depreciation or mileage. You can't do both. The mileage has a depreciation component to it. So correct. You cannot do both. So, uh, especially if you, the more you drive, the better your value on that mileage, standard mileage rate, 67 cents. Yep. And you don't have, somebody says you don't have to recapture the mileage when you sell. No, you do not. Mm -hmm. That's why we tend to prefer. 
everybody that I've ever read, like when I read the journals and stuff like that, and they're talking about cars and they're doing this analysis, they're always pretending that you're buying another vehicle when you sell yours and you're getting another big deduction. So I have a vehicle, I sell it, I have recapture, but I buy another vehicle and it offsets that the recapture right set you saw so i didn't have to pay any gain and i'm always like forced into it yeah you're you're literally forced into it and i'm like hey why don't we just let's just be real my my clients on average having looked at this they're probably 20 percent business use mm-hmm. they can't use 179 and 168 for the most part it's really all about the mileage reimbursement and then it's easy it's easy are you able to own the vehicle for one month as a business and still get the 60 percent yeah actually if you own it the last month of the year, even as long as you put it in service during that year, you could write that off, but then you have to exceed 50% every year for the life of that yep. vehicle. So it's just a little, one of those little things, they sucker punch you. And then here's the other side that we never see is if you are personally using that vehicle. So let's say that the, the business is paying for that vehicle and it, and it gets to write off half, you have a taxable income component for the lease value of the vehicle that you're using. So you know how the, the company reimburses you 67 cents per mile? It's essentially the equivalent. You have to pay for your personal miles as ordinary income for the, for, for the, for the business, the personal use of that vehicle. So you have a business vehicle. It's like this. If I gave Elliot said, Hey, here's a keys to the, the G wagon. The, the IRS has a chart and they say value of the vehicle. Here's its lease value. In that case, it's probably about $48,000 a year. It was half used for business. So $24,000 would be taxable to this guy right here. Yep. With withholding and everything else. As well as the insurance price that Toby talked about. It's really not a good deal. It it works when you, that's if you are 100% using it for business, it's all you use it. You got your own separate car for your personal, or if it's like a delivery truck and that is what the business is about, you know, it's very... a specified vehicle for that type of business, then it's a little bit different. Yeah. So if you're a realtor and you're using one vehicle to take your clients around and you have a personal car at home, you're fine. Track the mileage on that business vehicle. That's all I'm saying. It's like, make sure you still got the mile IQ on there. If it's a hundred percent, you'll be able to win that. You'll say, this is the one I use to take my clients around in and here's all the, 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 the visits. It's actually pretty simple. You can actually set like, hey, if I'm driving between my brokerage and my home and I have a home office, that can automatically, as soon as it sees that GPS and it, those, those coordinates, it says, ah, business. So you don't have to mess around with it. And you could track it out that way. And then you have your personal and you're not trying to write that one off. So you're okay. What, what, what usually trips people up is that they have one vehicle. If you're in construction, it's very common to have multiple vehicles. And if you have multiple vehicles, sometimes you're forced to go the actual expense method. If you have over five, I think, mm-hmm. then you ha- you're, you, it's considered a fleet. What's the name of the app that tracks the mileage? It's Mile IQ. I have it on my phone. Patty got the link. Yeah, Patty just put it up there. It's easy. Just do that. It's, it's so good for you. And again, it knows your trip. So if you have a common trip that you're constantly doing between offices, like, hey, I have three offices that I zip around to and It'll automatically track them as business. All right. Fun one. Yep. <laughs> All right. Now, I think we're on number two, right? Right. Come on, Chris. Moving along. All right. With bonus depreciation being reduced to 40% next year and 20% the year after that, then ending in 2027, what are the alternative alternatives for investors who've been using bonus depreciation through real estate purchases to reduce taxable income? Well, that's where we're going to have to do some planning. 
assuming that this is it holds this course, which you know we don't know, but uh, historically it has not. We've always had bonus depreciation, so if history means anything, we'll probably get some form of bonus depreciation back. But if we don't, we can look at uh, maybe contributions to uh, nonprofit nonprofits or something like that. Look at other business expenses going along with your business. Uh, so it's kind of sad if we do lose this because it's been such a great run. We can't promise you that they're going to come back with something. But like I said, historically, we've had at least 50 percent for, for some time. Yeah. And here's the thing to remember is that when you're doing bonus depreciation, the first step before you get there is you're doing a cost segregation. And all that means is that typically when you walk into a, let's say it's a single family rental. If you just went to a regular accountant, they're going to say, oh, that's 27 and a half year property. That is true if you want it to be. Like the IRS will let you, that's actually called an impermissible method, but the IRS allows you to do it because you're writing things off over their longest life of all the property in there. If I actually get an engineering study, it's going to say, hey, some of this property is five year, the appliances are seven year, like furniture and stuff like that, seven year. Land improvements are 15 years. Carpet. Carpet is five year. And the walls, the structure itself are 27 and a half. So you're breaking it down. It's usually about 60 to 70% is the structure and 40%, 30 to 40% is those other items. That's what we're talking about. Those other items we can write off over five, seven, or 15 years, or we could choose to bonus them. And the bonus is based on the year they were put in service. So if I do this on a property that I bought in 2021, it's 100%. Even if I do it this year where bonus depreciation is at 60%, 60%, right? Yeah. So I can still write off 100% bonus depreciation on a property that I've held. If I buy a property now, now I'm looking at it and going, okay, that five-year property, I'm still writing it off over five years, but I can bonus 60% of it into year one. So if I was going to write off $100,000 over five years, I would get a $60,000 deduction, 60% in year one. And then I'd have 40,000 that I'm spreading it out over five years. So it's not like it just disappeared. And I'm looking at, so he says, doesn't a cost seg cost $5,000 plus Thomas? No, they start right around 1500 and they go up depending on the type of property and who you're using. We use cost seg authority. They've just done a great job for us. How many of you guys have used cost seg authority for doing your cost segs, we we refer to them as a CPA firm that all they do is R&D credits and cost seg, and they do a great job. In my, There's a few people. Give me a uh, thumbs up or a heart if you liked working with cost seg authority. I just want to see if there's anybody out there that's using them. Coming now. Yeah, they're coming now. There's, there, there's a few of you guys. There we go. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more than a handful. It's actually quite a few. So as we're going through, yes, they've taken away some of the serious sauce. It's juice right? But it's not gone. You're still writing things off much faster. Uh, somebody says, I just had my first call with them yesterday and they were great. I've been working with Eric Oliver and those guys for years and they just do a solid job. So we just like working with them. I like working with experts. So this is what they do. Ding. Free estimate too. Free estimate. If you go through Anderson, that's great. And uh, they op- they'll get to there fast. So we'll actually send you a link if you want. So that way they know. So they're not charging you for stuff. Patty will get it to you. I think it's aba.link forward slash CSA for cost seg authority there. And uh, uh, Juan says, I've used cost seg authority on three properties. Approximate cost and how much did it save you? If you're okay telling me one on a chat, it's like, I'm actually reading his chat. It's kind of fun. So you never know, right? Juan says, we'll see if it's the juice is worth the squeeze. 
I want to know because it's I, I use a rule if it's if it's seven times what it costs if I'm saving seven times what it costs I'm doing it right I want a dollar today not a dollar in five years or not a dollar in 25 years I want that dollar today it's it's it's, it's worth a lot more a dollar today it's worth a lot more than a dollar in 25 years 27 years Certainly. yeah so anyway uh he's just he's just laughing um I won't press here I won't twist your arm Oh, he said, uh, cost me 2,500 bucks and saved me over 22,000. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that wasn't one. That was somebody else. But that's, that's about right. That's what you're looking at. Okay. So cost me, save me more. You, and here's the, here's the thing. You just don't pull the trigger. It's not, it's not worth it. Juice has to be worth the squeeze. So you're able to go in there with your eyes open and say, here's what it's going to work out. And you got to look and say, what are you going to do with that loss? If I'm able to create a nice big fat loss, like in that particular case, I'd guesstimate you're probably getting $80,000 worth of depreciation. If it's just going to create a loss that I can't use that I'm just carrying forward, it may not be worth it. If it's going to offset a bunch of my other income, absolutely worth it. And that's why they look at what is it actually saving me? Not what is it creating in terms of deduction? It's what is it actually saving me? And that's a factor of what's my tax bracket. And, uh, and how much of it can I use? So, I, I, you know, and then you're right. You can use some other strategies. One of the things I do is I donate properties that have been depreciated. So I've grabbed my houses. Patty has to deal with my shenanigans all the time. I think we've given away five or six houses where we buy them, depreciate them enough, and they're sitting around and they've appreciated in value. So you buy a house at 50, it's now worth 300. I might just give that to charity. Right. And you're like, well, you give it to the American Red Cross. No, I'm going to give it to my charity where I'm actually running it. And it's for uh, low to moderate income housing. And I'm going to get a big tax deduction that's actually worth more than the house. Like I'm running it off twice. So I always look at, but now it's going to be charitable use for the rest of its existence, which I'm okay with that. I like stuff like that. So there's, there's other ways. We'll get our little thinking caps on, on your situation and we'll find ways to find you some other deductions. There's other uh, ways to get there. We didn't always have bonus depreciation. We've been doing this for 25 years. There's always some strategies to find benefit plans, getting money into another uh, entity, paying kids, paying other relatives, uh, getting other people involved, creating other deductions as you're starting up other types of businesses that can then offset the type of taxable income you have, making more charitable donations. All those fall in those categories. And we're just looking at it to see whether or not it makes sense, you know? So you're just, again, that's all you're doing is you're, we call it uh, the three rules of tax planning. The three rules are real simple. This is another Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> if you reference. You gotta watch right? it. You gotta watch it if you're gonna, you're gonna catch some of these, right? But you have three rules, right? Number one is, I can't do it that way. I'm gonna have to go this direction. Number one is calculate. Number two is calculate. And number three is, calculate, right? So we're going to calculate and see whether it's worth it. If it makes sense, then we're going to do it. So. Success is just around the corner. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have some fun. And, and Anne, you're back. All right. We love it when people stick around and come back and do all that. So, all right. I have an LLC C-Corp with an accountable plan, including medical reimbursements. I have a high deductible insurance plan and an HSA. Would it make sense to use the medical reimbursement from the C-Corp for uncovered medical expenses instead of paying with the HSA, letting the HSA continue to grow? So the simple direct answer is yes. And yes, you can do that. You can have the medical reimbursement and an HSA. 
The more complicated, strung out answer is that sometimes you have to have a special type of HSA. And if you're working with a group that sets those up, they'll walk you through that. But usually you can still do things like medical, or excuse me, uh, vision and dental, do those. Uh, but otherwise you might have to use your HSA first up to the deductible amount approximately, or the high deductible amount, before you could use your uh, medical reimbursement plan. But you can use them both. I don't know how they track this. Yeah, right. And so, and I've never seen anybody go under audit on this. So the IRS is saying, basically, we know that if you put money in the HSA and at the same time, you're wiping out all your expenses with a health reimbursement plan, that you're going to have a major amount of money in that HSA that you got a deduction for, and you will never pay tax on. It's a triple threat, triple threat, meaning you get a tax deduction, tax-free growth, and never pay tax again. It's like a Roth on steroids. Could you imagine if you got a deduction for putting money in a Roth and then it grew and you never had to pay tax on it? That is an HSA. So you absolutely want an HSA. And so they don't want you to sit there and jam a bunch of money in an HSA when you have your company reimbursing every nickel that you spend on health. And so what they're saying is, hey, HSA pays for the high deductible. That's it. It's not the premiums, it's the deductible. So maybe it's, you know, 1500 bucks, 2000, 2500, whatever it is. It might have to do that. But you remember, you could put 7,000 bucks in these things a year, plus you have a makeup. Yeah, you're still coming out ahead. You are coming out ahead. It's just making sure. And I don't know how they track that guy. I have Thank no you. idea how they track it. I don't know what they would do if you've. Doesn't, mean we're, it doesn't mean we're advocating not tracking it, but. <laughs> no, I don't know anybody that knows. Yeah, I've never. But we're, I, we're, we're scouring, by the way, like, yeah. like we're scouring, like we, like, hey, is there anything <laughs> out there on this that anybody is that knowledgeable that's really written on it? And they're like, I oh, know you got three, this thing, that thing. And there's this one over here. And maybe you're supposed to do this, but we really don't know. Yeah. And it's always a percentage and it's this, that, and the other. They just make it a little bit convoluted, probably to scare people out. John says, easy on the thinking. I got one brain cell left. <laughs> and it's questionable. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can relate. I can relate. <laughs> Been in the pugilistic arts for a long time. I had a little bit of close head injury. So, hey, but as long as you're functioning, John, yeah. You're here today. Maybe self-directed HSAs. You could still do it. Yeah, it's still the rule, Hazen, that you could do a self-directed. I have a self-directed HSA. And at the end of the day, when you're doing these, there are different categories if you have that health reimbursement plan. So just, just be on a lookout. Questions, just reach out to us. It's part of your platinum service. Mm. So if you're platinum, just say, here's my scenario. We'll research it for you. We'll give you an answer and you can rely on us. And the reason you do that is because you always have somebody else you can blame and it gets you out of penalties. It might not escape interest if you ever got tagged and we did something wrong, but it keeps you out of the firing line for being the, the responsible, the totally responsible party. And that's why you use a group like us. And we're more than happy to look it up for you, find out what the answers are, talk to the people, make sure that we're looking at it, crossing our T's, dotting our I's, and making sure you're getting the best benefit. But those HSAs are a potent vehicle, uh, and they're fantastic. And you should have one. If you can have an HSA, open up an HSA. Even if you, hey, I could have one through my employer. Now, try to get one on your own. Self-directed is, is the best. What happens when the HSA ends? You're spending it on all uh, medical. And on average, people spend about $200,000 on medical during their retirement. And you can convert it, a certain amount of it, to a Roth 
uh, otherwise it's going to be taxed. And uh, I think, is there a penalty on it? I always forget whether there's just a penalty or whether there's tax. Yeah, I don't think it's a penalty yet for retirement. After retirement, I think it's just tax. Then it's just treated like an IRA. So like you're not beaten up and you really, you lose the big benefit if you're not using it on medical, but we don't have enough history on it to see whether somebody just gets millions of dollars in the HSA and then they don't use it. But the the geek answer behind this is, remember, you got that deduction 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And that you use that hopefully for some benefit and that will only continue to snowball. Yeah. You don't have to disqualify the whole thing. You just take pieces out and you treat it like a 401k or an IRA. All right. I have owned a residence for 10 years. I have lived in it the first year and rented it out. Oof. We have recently moved back into it and I want to live there for at least two years so as not to pay tax when we sell it. I will potentially profit about $350,000 and am married. Is this a wise action? I'm 76 years old. I plan on moving into our other rental at that time and perhaps selling it after two years as well. Yeah, I love this question because we're thinking, trying to think down the line what we're doing in our retirement years. So what we got to do here is we got to look at the time that you lived in it, the one year. You got two more years and our total time then would be 12 overall, but nine years, it was rented out. So we take a fraction. We take the nine years that we were not using it as a personal residence, the years we were renting. That's called non-qualified use. Exactly right. And we divide that by the total number of years of ownership, the 12, we get 75%. We take that 75% times the amount again, the 350, 350,000. We're going to step back and look at that here in a second, but we would take that times that, and that's the amount of gain that you cannot exclude under 121, which is what we're talking about here, section 121, which is 250,000 single, 500,000 um, married filing joint. But getting back to the 350,000 gain, remember you did rent it out for nine years. You had depreciation, and if you didn't take depreciation, you will be treated by the tax code as if you did. So we're going to have some of that depreciation recapture that we talked about all the way back in question one. So really, we have to deal with that first. So we may not have 350 of capital gain here. We may have a little bit less, mm-hmm. but whatever that is, we take it times our 75%. That's the amount of the capital gain that we cannot use under the 121. The rest we can. So you could effectively, just depending on what the number looks like here, I don't know what, well, we don't know the depreciation recapture, but 75% of 350, uh, two and change, 200,000 or so. Uh, you'd be able to not use in 121 the balance you would use against the 121 exclusion. So yes, you can do this. Uh, it's just going to be perhaps at a reduced amount. So let me dive into a couple of things. Number one, the type of exclusion they're talking about is the 121. So it's IRC 121 exclusion. It's 250K for single and it's 500K for married filing jointly. You have to have lived in the house two of the last five years. When we get into non-qualified use, this confuses the heck out of people. If I lived in it for two years and then I rented it for two years, the two years that I rented it before I sold it are excluded from this calculation because they say any period of time prior to sell beyond the two years, ignore. So I could live in it two years. So let's just say that we lived in it for, we we did two years personal and then we did three years rental, they would not count that towards the non-qualified use. They'd only count the the non-qualified use as being that time that occurred before the two years of personal use. So when we add all this up, we have a total of 12 years. Three years is qualified use. 
nine years is non-qualified. So that looks like 25%. Correct. Or 75, yep. <laughs> so 75% non-qualified. Yep. So 25% qualified. Correct. I'm just going to do the opposite because it's a little bit easier for me. We have 350000 And what we don't know is de- depreciation recapture. Because depreciation recapture is not offset by 121. 121 is capital gains only. So if there's 350000 and we look and we say we've had this property and we depreciated it for nine years, the question is how much of that three fifty is recapture? Let's say it's $100,000. So I'll just say, all right, we have $100,000. Then we'll take three fifty minus 100, which gets us to 250 times 0.25. That's the amount of gain that I could potentially offset with my 121 exclusion. And I don't know what that adds up to. So that adds up to, I guess, I guess that'd be 62,500. Yeah. Something like that. I think that's right. That's the amount. 62,500 is the amount. So not 6,200, but 62,500. That's the amount we could offset with the capital gain exclusion. So when I see this type of scenario, and I see somebody who's had it as an investment property, I'm really tempted to say, hey, you want to avoid all tax? You're going to have to 1031 exchange that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to live in it for uh, two years, go for it. When you make it a, then make it a rental and then sell it. Make it a rental for a year or half a year. Somebody says, oh, you can die. Then you step up and base. Yeah, Thomas, that's... Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Don't kill yourself just for the step up. You're not going to get a benefit out. All right. But you could do a 1031 exchange into another property. And then what they said is uh, on the other property, they were talking about waiting two years and moving back into it. So 121 allows you to do it every two years you can use that 121 exclusion. So if we do this, we could actually do exactly your strategy. You'd offset and not pay capital gains on 62,500 out of that 350, which probably is not going to wow yet. You're probably going to be like, oh man, that kind of sucks. All right, then 1031 it. And, uh, you know, and on the second property, if you're going to live in that one, I'd probably just live in that one, sell the other one, 1031 it into another property that you might want to live in. And you can do that. You can 1031 into a great property that you're like, this is awesome. I, I would love to live in that property. You're going to save a bunch of money. You're going to save, shoot, I don't know how many, how much tax that would be. Let's just say it's 20, you would be what, 23.8% plus ordinary income on a hundred. So there'd be, oh shoot, I can't even, I can't even add. It would, it'd be a good 30, 40,000 bucks just on that plus recapture. So probably Fifty or sixty thousand dollars it would save you. Maybe you're better off taking this property with all that gain, and instead of moving into it, just selling it as a ten thirty one exchange and get something that you're like excited to go move into in a year. Then, because you didn't use your one twenty one exclusion, sell the other property that you've been living in for the last I don't know how many years, but the other rental. It looks like you'd have to live in it for two years. Live in that one for two years and then sell that one and see, uh, we'd have to run the same analysis on it. I thought, you know, we had that video that we cut. If you uh, wanted to do something different, you're just trying to slowly get rid of your rentals. Toby did a video on his YouTube channel where we look at maybe putting a, that interest into an upreit umbrella uh, partnership, real estate investment trust. You wouldn't have to do rentals anymore if you didn't want to do that, if you just wanted to have, but you'd still have your investment in there. 
And depending on how the numbers calculate out, you could still defer that tax. It's like a 1031. Actually, you do a 1031 still. So there's other options out there if you're just trying to slowly get out of the real estate game, hands-on. You could get into these other investments that still get the benefits of it, but you don't have to do any of the work, so to speak. And then and then here's the last fun one. If you keep it as investment properties, you could always buy other investment properties mm-hmm. and accelerate depreciation and take some early write-off and use that those passive losses against the gain that you have on the other property. Yep, that's right. There's also probably some passive loss carried forward on this property for the nine years. Be that may be released as well. So like, there's some other factors to look at to see, but uh, it's giving you scenarios. So you remember the three rules, calculate, calculate, calculate. We're just going to go through them and we're going to see, all right, at the end of the day, what looks best for you. And uh, just keep working on it until we, we see whether there's a solution that meets your needs. And that's that's kind of what you need to work with a professional on. All right. Next one. I am a real estate professional and I bought many real estate homes from 2018 to 2022. All those years had 100% bonus depreciation. It's good times. Oh my God. <laughs> my accountant encouraged me not to use my real estate professional status. V8. wonder why they did that. To depreciate my rentals faster. That's just crazy. Probably they didn't know. Now I regret it. Should I just do amended returns? Well, it's not going to help us because when you take that, what's going to be a, a form you have to file when you do this uh, for the bonus depreciation, cost segregation, et cetera, there's a form 3115. And that has to be done on a timely filed original return. So we can't amend and go back and do that. But what we can do is go back and look at the uh, related cost segregations that we might have on these properties. And you could do effective today. And because you bought them back in these earlier years and had them in service at that time, we actually get to go back to the 100% bonus depreciation time. So not all is lost here, potentially. It's just going to depend on what we have going on in that house and what those cost segregation studies look like. Yes. This is what happens a lot of times when somebody comes in and they're like, oh man, I heard the bonus depreciation 60%. And I mean, I, I bought it three years ago. Shoot. I just screwed up. And then we're like, no. Three years ago, when you put it in service, it's 100% bonus depreciation. Even if you make the election to do it this year, you get to write it off. And this is what it sounds like. Yeah. I I love to get to use my soundboards. Sorry, guys. I'm going to do it again. And since we had... How excited they are. Since we have... I know there's like one person. And since we have presidential primary... I would be remiss if I didn't remind you who of you put in chat, you'll get a prize, which would be a, a, a slow clap if you could recognize this one. Yeah! <laughs> who remembers that? Stop it, Patty. Who remembers that? Yeah! What's that? There it is. There we go. Brendan. Oh, you guys are nailing it. Brendan hit it. <laughs> Justin hit it. Come on, guys. Play along. Or- Tax people are bored. Come on. It's all tax stuff. Mr. Vermont. <laughs> Mr. Vermont. <laughs> we do that at the Knights games, but we, we, we do the Ric Flair. <laughs> That's all you do. You're like, you're like, hey, I get to write off a whole bunch of money. <laughs> I drink too much and I'm uh, and my wife's mad at me. <laughs> all right. Enough of that. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. All right. I think we I think we beat that one to death. Yeah, they're gonna yank us. <laughs> I have a <laughs> come on, taxes are fun. 
We're trying because you know what they get. Let's see if I can do it. Yes, that's all right. Hey, I like it now. That one's going to get some reaction. All right. All right. All right. Uh, Patty says it's, it's it's George Bush. Jesus, Patty. <laughs> really? I'm just kidding. Oh, Patty, she said how it played the two minutes before the script. So. Oh, I don't want to play the two minutes before that. Maybe maybe we should. I don't know what the two minutes <laughs> I like you guys. You guys are on my good list. George Clooney. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. So he says, does ABA maintain a list of preferred tax preparers? We have a bunch here, but there's uh, there's plenty of folks. If you have a good accountant that's willing to learn, keep them. <laughs> I'm careful. Toby, Patty handles your investments. <laughs> Patty, Patty, Patty handles what's left of my investments. <laughs> I think this is the proper term. All right. Just retired. I love that. All right, all right, all right, all right. Get back to this. I have a partnership set up with my stock trading management company. Does it still make sense to distribute income to my trading management company, structures the C Corp, if most of my trading gains this year will actually be long-term capital gains and therefore would actually be taxed at a rate lower than the corporate rate? What do you say? So we kind of wanted, this gets back to kind of Toby's uh, mantra today. We got calculate, calculate, calculate. But uh, remember, capital gains, they're at 0%, 15 or 20. And so if you're still in the 15 or 20, it probably still is beneficial to have that C-Corp. Because remember what we're doing with that, you're moving capital gains off of your personal return into a C-Corp where you should have reimbursements. So you're not paying any tax on that. Mm-hmm. So that's very tough to beat you know, in your calculations. So yeah, there's probably, we don't know specifically with your situation, but more than likely, there's still benefit to doing so. That's it. You just nailed it on the head. A lot of times what we do, so here's why we do what we do. In 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act did away with something called miscellaneous itemized deductions. That's when you could write off paying your financial advisor, or if you had an entity that had a brokerage account, we would pay a corporation to be the management company. You could write off those expenses subject to the miscellaneous itemized deduction floor. In 2017, they changed that. No more miscellaneous itemized deductions. So the strategy morphed into, we got to make the corporation a partner. Now, the reason we do that is twofold. Number one, if that corporation owns a percentage, they automatically get paid. So we usually start around 20%, depending on what type of tax appetite is in that corporation. Maybe it has 280A, administrative office for the home, cell phone reimbursement, equipment reimbursement, Maybe it's covering some expenses to go to some courses. Maybe it's traveling. Uh, Maybe it's a traditional family office and it's also handling some of your real estate. So it's covering those expenses too of managing and overseeing your real estate. Maybe it's doing your bookkeeping, but there's money that automatically gets like, so if that partnership makes $100,000, even if it's all long-term capital gains, there's a percentage of it that ends up in that corporation to pay all those expenses. And we don't have to worry about trader status. We don't have to jump through all these hoops to try to claim those as deductions. In addition, you can pay what's called a guaranteed payment to partner. A guaranteed payment to partner is a payment to one of the general partners, if it's a limited partnership or if it's an LLC with the corporation uh, as, a ma- as a manager. And it cannot be tied to the percentage of gain that you recognize. It can't be tied to a percentage. It needs to be a dollar amount. So like we would normally say, hey, there's this much set expense and this is what we estimate to be that that percentage. 
We really want to be in that range. We want to be able to knock those things out and write those off, not as an individual because we can't, but through the corporation. And so that corporation is designed to really get close to zeroing out. Like we shouldn't have a ton of money at 21%. So at the end of the day, the money that flows down to you is all long-term capital gains. It's going to be at your 0%, 15% or 20%, depending on what your taxes are. For most of you guys, it's 15%, which is fine. And what we did is instead of having $100,000 hit us, we had 80 or $70,000 hit us. If you're in a situation where you're like, hey, you know what? I really like those long-term capital gains. Maybe you reduce the amount of percentage that's in that corporation and have it earn its money elsewhere. And that's by setting up a side gig, have it manage your real estate, have it manage another business, have it do the social media, bookkeeping, tax prep on other businesses. Otherwise, the revenue that it's going to be fed with is from that trading. And again, it's just looking at the numbers and saying, what's the best use of my money and how to best minimize the tax burden? And you can run through a few scenarios. Elliot does these great. He, yeah. he gets, we have a thing where we'll do one, two, three, four, five, six comparisons. Yeah. And you could say that one, three is best for me. It lowers my taxes. And then we, we shoot towards that. And during the year, you just want to make sure that you're talking to somebody, usually like a guy like Elliot's meeting on a quarterly basis with clients. I meet quarterly basis on with clients. And I like to say, all right, let's just make sure we're following the track and nothing's too far off. And all we're doing is just saying, hey, you know what? If you have long-term capital gains, that's what I want hitting my return. If I can avoid ordinary income from hitting my return, I'm going to do that to the best I can, especially if you have W-2 income from another job or something else like that. So hopefully you guys get that. And again, I, I don't know another way to put this. You really want to have people that kind of get this stuff so that they can run through scenarios so that you can make decisions that are in your best interest. You don't really want somebody telling you what to do. Somebody said, and I'm just reading off the chat. Sometimes you see these things come in. I'd like to set up a self-employed trader status LLC to be able to have tax deductions. I had the platinum membership with Anderson help me set this up. I live in Anchorage, Alaska. So the question with trader status is you got to do about 750 trades a year. It's got to be more than 70% of the trading uh, days, and it has to be substantial. It's where you make the most of your money. If you fall below those standards, we're probably taking you into a structure like this one that we just described. If you do qualify, then there's something else that you could do, which is called a mark-to-market election, which could unlock your losses to become ordinary if you have losses but it does allow you to take ordinary necessary deductions. I tend to be like one out of a hundred people that think they're traders actually qualify as a trader. When you look at the court cases, it's nuts. So I try not to do that. Question about depreciation. Next question. This question is about depreciation recapture. When you sell a real estate property, is your depreciation recapture tax at the same rate as when you took the depreciation? And can the depreciation from other properties you own concurrently offset the depreciation recapture on the one you are selling? So answer the first question, the rate will depend on what your tax rate is that particular year that you sold it, or I guess the years that you were deducting it. So in other words, you have a property, you're depreciating it, you have it for five years. How much uh, tax savings that rate is going to depend on whatever your tax bracket was for those individual five years. So we that could vary over time. Now come to the year of sale, it's going to depend on what your tax bracket rate is for that year. That's what we're going to look at. So they all have different rates. Theoretically, it could be the same, maybe different. 
But to the second question, you're exactly right. If you have other passive losses, you're going to be able to use those. So if you had one property and for whatever reason, it didn't track any passive losses, didn't have any, but you had other rentals that did, you're allowed to use those uh, passive losses to help you on that property you sold and then you sell it. So yes, it can help you. So uh, again, just to reiterate, your depreciation that you had, you didn't even have to take. So if you could have taken depreciation, you must recapture it. Yes. So even if you have properties that, oh, I didn't depreciate, so I shouldn't have recapture. That's not how it works. If you could have depreciated, you have to recapture. So the answer is depreciation that you're entitled to would be at your ordinary rate, unless it creates losses, in which case it carries forward and then is released when you sell. So then the question is, is there any gain? Uh, And if it is released when you sell, is there any recapture? Because out of that gain comes that recapture first, and then you have your long-term capital gain after that. So uh, it, it would actually be running a couple scenarios based on your situation. And then Elliot nailed it on the head. A lot of tax planning, we call it the lazy man's 1031 exchange which means, oh, I have gain and depreciation recapture on this property, and I know that I'm going to have to pay tax on it. A lot of guys like us are like, buy another property, accelerate the depreciation, write it off. We don't pay tax on this one. Saves you 30 grand. Oh, and it might be that you're putting $50,000 down on a property to buy it, and it's paying for itself because you have good rents and you're buying intelligently. But that little bit of money, like you just got a huge saving and the IRS basically said, here, we'll kick in. And that's the way to look at it. That's kind of fun. It can be complicated. <laughs> Somebody says, God, taxes are complicated with this question and answer about recapture and tax after selling. Don't worry. It's, it, it, it's a new language to you, but to us, it's actually pretty old hat. And all we do is we start looking at categorizing, and we say, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. Which way do you like it best? And we start leading you down the right path so that your eyes are like this, open. They're big and open. And that way you can make the best decision for you. And that's what it really matters about. It's just being able to know what's coming and being able to do things that you can't. And, uh, and it works. Works. All right. Back to work. Oh, there's Clint. Mr. Coons, you want to learn about land trust, LLCs, corporations. You want to learn about dealer status, accelerated depreciation, how to write things off. If you want to learn about basic estate planning and how to create a dynasty, and by the way, how many of you guys would like to create a multi-generational estate plan where you're, you're helping not just your kids, but your kids, kids, and your kids, kids, kids? How many of you guys would like to actually create generational wealth? This is a great workshop to start. It's not the only one that you probably want to go to, but it's a great one to start with. And we go over all those topics. Sometimes we do a condensed, a condensed version. That's a half day where we're getting into an asset protection. We'll probably do some that are tax specific too. We're going to give you guys more choices coming in 2024, but the whole idea is to give you the options so you can make intelligent decisions to better your family. And I'm one of those guys that when I look at people, I'm like, what do you want your state to look like in 300 years? And they look at you like you're from Mars. You're like, what are you talking about? That's only for the really wealthy. And I'm always like, no, it's actually for anybody if they know how to structure things right. And and if you say, I don't have any money, you have a body, you can insure it that creates the money if something happens before you earn it. So we're all on a journey. When you start thinking in terms of 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 
it's amazing how the world gets very small and your options get very specific and you say, I can do this and this, and then boom, you're not sitting here wondering, well, I could do this, this, that, or the other. You get very focused very quickly because there's only a couple ways to do it. Like it's either trust or foundations in our world and uh, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. If anybody ever tells you that you can't do it, no, you don't have enough money or you don't do they're absolutely full of it. We've had people have a ton of success starting off very modest, getting things going on and setting up that plan early on. We've had folks unfortunately pass at young ages. We just had a 34 year old who passed away because of a drunk driver. Thank God they already had their plan in place. And that's the thing is their legacy still going to live on, still going to live on, not going to stop. And that's because they were very deliberate about their planning. So come to the tax and asset protection workshop. It'll be worth your time. Now, next question. You ready? Yep. How do you determine the best structure for a residential assisted living business when it'll be located in Florida and Georgia, buying the home and renting it to the business? So at first, this doesn't look like it has a whole lot of tax application. We're looking for a structure. And that's sometimes that's part of what goes into the, the, the tax. They work together. They walk hand in hand. One thing here I, I liked about it is that the, the individual asking the question is talking about having the home and renting it to the business. So right there, we've separated the two components. Why? Because if we put them together, if we had the business and it owned the home, you always run the risk of having someone like me being in that business and I sue you and I take the whole thing. I take the house and the business. So we separate, that's our structure, but that's the benefit of that is that's going to help us tax wise as well. So that's kind of why we, we picked this question here. Yeah. And realistically, whenever you're getting into residential assisted living, which is usually you're making something that's either, uh, we do a lot of recovery housing, we do a lot of elder housing here, and you're looking at it into little silos. You have your investor and you might be wearing all three hats, but you might have your investor who's coming up with the money. You have your operating company, which is, this is the, the guys that are actually running things. They're actually providing services. And then you just have the landlord. And you want to separate those three things out so that if something happens in the real estate, it stays in the real estate. If something happens in the opco, it stays in the opco. Nobody's coming after the cash because it's only loaning to these guys. And now it's in first position. So if somebody comes after the opco, who gets paid back first? Investor. If somebody comes after the real estate, who gets paid back first? The investor. We do this to isolate risk. And also to give you some more tax benefits, because guess what? This OPCO could be exempt. It could be a 501c3. It could be a C or an S corp. It could be a traditional business. You could even have different divisions. So like uh, uh, if I was, let's see, OPCO, I just get rid of the OP. But let's just say that I was running multiple facilities and I was even renting them from somebody else. So in this case, let's say I'm renting them from myself, but I could be renting them from a third party as well. I could set up an opco for each property, but have it taxed up to one single entity as the parent. And I could avoid tax entirely if I want to run that as a, an exempt organization. You could actually do that. It actually qualifies, re residential assisted living. So there's a lot of benefits to residential assisted living. It could be a nice cash flow machine but you actually have choices in how you structure it. My personal preference is exactly as you see right here, because I can take the cash, everything that I risked, 
is right here and nobody's dealing with that. No third parties. I have employees here. They like to sue. I have the guests and residents. Grandma chokes on key lime pie, gets mad, or they say you were negligent when she fell down or he fell down, something like that. That stuff happens all the time. Hey, you know, you didn't give, or uh, HIPAA violations. Hey, you told the residents about, you know, that, that, that grandma had to go get a medical uh, sur- you know, surgery or something like that. You disclosed it and they try to go after people. They're just relentless right now in California, especially. But you would just do these in each and every state. So if you were in Florida and Georgia, you would have these businesses actually registered in Florida and, and Georgia. I'd probably put the investment in Wyoming using a Wyoming LLC. And then I would document that loan, lien the building. I would file UCC ones against the operating agreement, depending on what type of assets it has. And I would put myself in first position. So if somebody comes after us, you have insurance, you have an umbrella and you say, even if you win, you don't win. Even if you win, you lose. That's what you want the narrative to be. So when somebody's looking at it, they're not just looking at you to shake you down. They're looking at you saying, this is more complicated. I got some hurdles to cross and it makes a huge difference. We've been working on this for years and I can tell you this works like a charm. It works very, very well. Keeps you out of trouble because we can do so much of this with anonymity. It can keep you from having to pay tax if you're doing the opco correct. And that real estate can also kick down losses so we can keep our low, our taxes really low. But at the end of the day, it's just a really easy structure to operate and it's very, very effective. And then somebody says, oh my God, this topic is right up my alley, uh, sober living and all this. Glenn, that's exactly what we teach. I work with uh, Frank and Sherry Candelario all the time. I think twice a year, we do one on shared housing. That is uh, Recovery Housing, National Association of Recovery Residences. We work with and our National Alliance of Recovery Residences, our certification homes. We work with veterans. We have some clients that are just really all in on this. And it's kind of amazing how well they do financially as well. But there's nothing wrong with doing well while you're doing good. I just never have a problem with that. So do you help clients set up that safety structure? Absolutely one, all day long, day in and day out. Uh, we've been doing this for years. Thousands of those types of structures we've worked with over the years. Very good friend of mine, Gene Greeno, before he passed. That's was That was his whole business was, they called it the silver tsunami because so many people are getting older and they don't want to go into a, a, a typical nursing home. And uh, a lot of times they want to live in a really nice home. It's uh, the old adage that you don't want to go to a home that you want to drive by. You want to go to a home that you want to drive to, if you know what I mean. You want to actually feel good. So a lot of these homes are in golf course communities. You have somebody there. It's like club med. They're fixing the meals. They're taking care of things. They're doing their laundry. They do really like it, it's, it's actually a really nice high level service. It's not memory care. It's not nursing. There's those as well, but just typical residential assisted living can be very effective, can be very effective. And the average right now in the United States is about $4,000 per room per month. And you'd be surprised. People would uh, climb over glass to get into a nice facility where it's like they're living at home. We get this all the time and people don't want to leave their home. But when they see a house that's just like their home or nice like that, and they're in a good community, and it feels like home, they're much more receptive and then they're much more uh, receptive to care. And the people that do that, they get a star, they get a big old gold star. So you could absolutely do that. About four grand a room, that's something to calculate. 
<laughs> uh, get it, started on that. It's it. The numbers don't lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Frank and Sherry would do recovery housing. They have a contract with the state of Washington, and it's uh, gosh, I want to say it's thirteen hundred dollars per bed, and there's two beds per room, five rooms per home. So they're making about uh, whatever that is, $13,000 a month, whether the bed's full or not. And it's recovery housing. It's it's getting people out of jail because it's so expensive to incarcerate and they shouldn't be there anyway. They're, they're, they're sober now. They're in clean and sober living. One parole officer can come over and check all everybody. And it seems to be a much better uh, uh, fitting. And they're being treated like human beings, which is amazing. When you people, when you treat people like human beings, they tend to respond like human beings. When you treat them like animal, it, it tends to be negative. And so this is a much better idea. And it's, and it's catching, it's catching up. Like they, from six, seven years ago, when we were really pushing this, it, a lot of closed doors to the phase, we you know, push, 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 push. Now they have a waiting list. They have Governor Ensley, uh, re, you know, did some accolades to him. We're seeing it more and more around the country. People are realizing that this is a model that actually works and they want to adopt it. All right, next question. What are the tax implications of investing in wine? We just talked about recovery housing, right? <laughs> For example, like using a platform like VinoVest. I actually use VinoVest. I buy whiskey. Is one able to write off losses from the sale of wine or offset these losses against taxes owed in a sort of tax loss harvesting way. So I think when we talk about wine, what we want to get into is how is it taxed if we had gains or what category does it fall in? It is actually a capital asset. It's a lesser known category. We talked about 0, 15, and 20%, but this is a 28% bracket and it's called collectibles. This is going to be your art, your fine alcohols and things like that. And so there actually is a a unique uh, category of capital gains for this, again, 28%. But here we're talking about losses. But because it's a capital gain, it's treated just the same same way as if we have losses. So yes, you're going to be able to use those losses to write off against other capital losses or the $3,000 limit against ordinary income. It is nailed. I don't even know what to add. Here's the thing. It's considered a collectible. So the only thing I would say is it's, it's taxed at your ordinary bracket. So if you're at 12%, it's 12%. If you're at 22%, it's at 20. But if you're at 30, uh, 32%, it's going to be capped at 28%. That's what happens to collectibles. And there's always the question, uh, booze or not, they're, they're ordinary. No, they're actually alcohol specifically mentioned. So you can, uh, you, you can get it. Somebody says, can I get a video after? We post these, Glenn, on YouTube in little bite-sized pieces. And we'll also give you guys the actual recording. So you can always, uh, for the whole thing. So some people like that. What other types of items could you use for the tax loss? Anything that's capital. So, or if you have ordinary loss, it will offset capital gains, but capital losses offset capital gains, even if it's on a collectible. So if you have other capital losses, hey, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin. You could you can loss harvest on a Bitcoin. You don't have, there's no wash sale loss rule on Bitcoin. So if if you buy Bitcoin or any of the other coins and you sell when they dip and you grab a little bit of a loss, you can offset your gain off of the vino vest and make sure that you're not having to pay tax on that. And obviously this is different than your, your, your liquor store. That's where they're doing it as an inventory sell. That's something completely different yeah. here. The, the individual asking the question nailed it by it's investing. This is where you're, you're doing it more as an investment than really a, a sales. Business. And it's, and it's an investment. You're doing vino vest. I don't even think you're taking possession of the wine. Yeah. A lot of times they're storing it for you. 
if you take possession of it and start drinking it, it's personal and it's no longer a capital asset. It's no longer an investment, which means you can't write off the losses. Help you get over the losses though. Yeah. <laughs> the empty bottle. Somebody oh. drank my wine. <laughs> All right. Here's the last one. I think this is the last yeah, one. Yeah, this is the last one. Is there a difference between filing business taxes with an October deadline versus an April deadline? If yes, what are the advantages, disadvantages of each? All right. So we talk a lot about this. You know, if you want to try and get your return all done by April or, or even March 15th for your S corporations and partnerships, that's fine. You can rush to that. But, you know, a lot of our clients are going to have those syndication investments, things like that, or relying on other things like K1s. Those are notoriously not only late, but inaccurate. And so we are always going to recommend that you extend, and that would extend your April deadline out to October. Gives you more time to clearly see what's going on. And there could be other tax deductions we might be able to get to. Uh, to look at, uh, even though we've closed your end, they are limited, not going to oversell that, but there are some things, but it gives you more time to get all things properly put in to its place. We talked earlier about bonus depreciation, cost segregation. You got to do that form 3115. This doing an extension allows you more time to get that study done. You can do that up till October if you didn't get it done before a year and maybe you never heard of cost seg before. So there's a lot of benefits to doing that extension. Yeah. So for the business return itself, then there's things like SEP IRAs, there's things like 401ks, there's defined benefit plans that allow you to contribute and deduct them for last year, so long as the employer makes that contribution before it files its taxes plus extensions. So, you know, so I, I, I always, I used, used to use an example, I shouldn't bash on the guy, but somebody was like, hey, I have an S corp, I've never been late, I always file uh, March 15th. I was like, great. Uh, I would recommend that we extend it out, even though you're done. Let's just see if anything happens over the summer, right? Sometimes business goes up. Sometimes business goes down. Sometimes I'm sitting on some extra cash. If I can lower my taxes for last year because I have some cash available to put into an employee 401k or, or add a defined benefit plan, I might do that. And by the way, we can add them even after the end of the year nowadays. And they said, no, I wanted to file on March 15th. And sure enough, Come, it was right around September, which is when their tax return was due. They had extra cash and they were like, hey, I'd really like to do this contribution. Can I do this now? Because it's going to save me a bunch of money for last year. And I'm looking at them like, yeah, if we could go back in the time machine and change that, we could absolutely do it. But you were, but you were insistent on filing. Now, do you understand why we don't do that? Lesson learned. And they were like, it was like seven grand that it would have saved them. And they were just like, ah, oh, shoot, that sucks. Well, they could still, you know, they could still make you more contributions for the current year, but they can't go back and fix last year. So I always tell people, if it's me, even if I had the return done, I'm probably sitting on it because I want to see what happens. Plus, if you have, if, if you're using a brokerage house, if you have 1099s coming in or K1s coming from investments, sometimes they're restated. In other words, you get something in April that was hurried because they're trying to do the year-end financials and get everything done. And then in June, they say, we were actually mistaken. Here's what the actual numbers are. And if you already filed your tax return, you're going back and amending. And I would just rather not do that. Yep. So give yourself as much time. It's not like a teacher comes in and says, Elliot, your homework is due on Friday. But if you really want to, <laughs> you, can, you can wait a week and it'll be next Friday. Let's not do that. <laughs> Go back to those dates. Yeah. Elliot's like, I'll do it. I'll do it on Thursday early. Right? No, it's sometimes it's not in the, in your best interest. Sometimes it's better to say, hey, I wrote my paper 
maybe I'll edit it. Maybe I'll make sure nothing's changed. Maybe, you know, whatever. You just give it another once over. Sometimes you're just sitting on it and then you just do it. But you're giving yourself the chance to see if things changed. And uh, and that makes a big difference. There's nothing to say that you can't go ahead and get everything turned in and maybe they can do just a, a, a trial run. Just don't file. Yeah. You know, and they're just waiting. Hey, yeah. I'll, we'll file it. Let's schedule it for you know, a week before the deadline or something like that. We'll just yeah. do it. Hey, guys, this is more fun. If you like this type of stuff and you want the replays, go on over to the YouTube channel. Absolutely. Uh, just uh, Patty will share the link. There it is. And uh, subscribe. I love it if you guys subscribe. It helps us. It gets more people out there. And uh, we do live stream these on our YouTube channel. So if somebody doesn't ever want to be known to us, they can absolutely do that because we, I don't even think we, we see who they are. End of the day, if uh, we just like to share the information. If you think people might benefit from hearing this type of information, if you want your kids to start getting used to taxes, we try to make it not as boring as typical taxes. We try to make it a little bit of fun and uh, we try to bring uh, you know, just a little bit of levity to it because otherwise taxes could just be boring as sin and be really annoying. And then come to the Tax and Asset Protection Workshop. We'd love to have you come. It's really boring when there's nobody there, although we haven't had one where there's nobody there. But it's more fun when lots of people are there asking lots of questions. We have our attorneys and our accountants answering questions the whole time. We're at least there. <laughs> yeah. This last one, we did over 1,200 questions. Yeah. It was bonkers. So uh, it, it makes it more fun, makes the day go by much quicker. And uh, your questions actually feed what type of things we're teaching to make sure that we're doing it. If you have questions in between Tax Tuesdays, please email us and let us know your question. <laughs> Toby is such a good man. It doesn't know but I, I live in Sin City. I know a lot about the sin. And all I know is that the people that do a lot of that sin, uh, the walk of shame and <laughs> lack of money, and although they never say they lose money. Never, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Rule in Vegas. You see a lady walking down the street on a weekend and she's carrying her shoes. Go home. It's too late. You're out too late. <laughs> you should be back in your bed. As soon as you start seeing them dress nice, carrying shoes, yeah. a little bit of a, a little bit of a look on their face. It's time to go home. You're out too late. That's that's our litmus test in Vegas. And unfortunately, it happens at about 8 p.m. So I'm just kidding. It's a little bit later on that. Uh, but it, email us at, at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com, guys, for absolutely, uh, we pick your questions and answer them here. So a lot of you guys, they respond. They're really nice people who oftentimes say that was my question. And then we can ask them a few extra questions and make sure that we're getting them a really good answer. And we've saved some people some big money mm -hmm. on those questions. And it's always fun when they come in and they start asking and they're like, oh my God, you could do that. And you're like, yep. yes, you can actually do that. And they don't have to come to us. They can go back to their accountant. This is, this is no strings attached. We just try to share information. So we will see you again in two weeks. Thank you for joining us. And I wanted to say thank you to Patty, Matthew, Ross, Dutch. I know there's others, Tanya, Jared, Elisa, Amanda's even on, Troy's even on. YouTubing. My, oh my God. You, we, we have like the A-team rocking it in the back of the house. They're answering questions. I don't know how many questions they answered, but I, you know, I could find out. Uh, they just do a really good job. So if you're, you're, you're back there, 183 questions. 184. And that's 184. When do we have to submit? You can submit questions whenever you want. Whenever you want, uh, Mr. L. I don't know what the 
first name is, but you could absolutely submit those questions and we don't, we don't charge you for it. And uh, sometimes you get them picked and you're going to see your question getting discussed and a little bit of a deep dive and you can always add some more color. So it's lots and lots of fun. And we will be back in two weeks. And, uh, and we really do enjoy sharing this information with you guys. If you think anybody could benefit, invite them to the next session. Uh, hopefully we will honor your, uh, bringing them in by giving them some information that's, that actually impacts them and helps them. And, uh, why we do it because, uh, your money's better off in your pocket doing things in your community than the government's pocket doing things all over the world, which, you know, it's questionable whether we are spending our money wisely. I think you'd be better off using it in your community. So I'm going to do everything I can to help you guys keep the money in your pocket. Uh, for no other reason than I, th- I know my clients. I know the people that I run across, the people that actually spend their time doing this. They tend to be givers. They tend to take care of their communities. And hopefully you use the money for that same thing. At the end of the day, it's money in your pocket. So we'll do everything we can to help you make that pocket full. And we will see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 